0: It's Monday, May 4th. My guests today are Ellen Brown and Walt McCree. Ellen is the well-known author of several books on public banking and The Web of Debt, one of her most popular books. And a Los Angeles-based attorney, she's one of the founders of the Public Banking Institute in the US. And Walt McCree is one of the founding members as well and head of the Public Banking Associates. We've had many conversations in the past about the role of public banking in a debt money system. And in this extreme COVID-19 economic crisis, the question arises, can public banking and a reconstituted and reinvigorated public banking sector become a key strategic piece in this new approach to an economic future? That question is an important one, particularly in Canada, where the role of the central bank, the Bank of Canada, could play a really important role in providing sufficient liquidity for households and businesses who are now struggling in this post-COVID-19 economic situation. What role can public banks play? Can public banks actually issue money without debt, without interest costs, as Ellen has written about? existed in the united states uh, certainly after world war ii uh, when with in which of infrastructure bank was created under roosevelt to create enough money to build bridges and dams etc and as ellen writes in japan regularly the central bank writes off government debts on a regular basis including the deficits of universities this is also true in china in which the sovereign bank actually creates enough debt money without interest costs for the nation as a whole, unlike what we experience in the United States and Canada, where most of the debt is created when banks issue loans. I hope you find this conversation with Ellen Wall today uh, encouraging, at least in terms of a financial solution and a new architecture. For the future of our economies where money hopefully is no longer scarce but becomes a public utility. That is money is created in sufficient supply for our needs, for the people, without costs, and particularly without the burden of interest which is now hidden inside of the costs and of all our goods and services. My current numbers for the United States show that roughly 45 cents on every dollar, Today is going to pay for those hidden interest charges on the total mountain of debt that continues to rise and will rise even more after the COVID pandemic is over and economic costs are tallied. So, the question I have from a public banking perspective, and I, I've I told the chief of staff of the minister. If yes, it's lovely to have well-being as a basis of budgeting, and we can measure well-being. Blah blah blah. That's can Canadians how they feel. But where will this money come from? This helicopter money to bail us out or get us through the next treatments? Because if if the government is going to sell debt bonds to the market again to finance this big hole, then that's not good enough. Because we know that before 1974, the Bank of Canada, you know, was sovereign in the sense of um, buying could buy government debt, and so I wanted you to kind of explain this um, in this podcast. And what I just read in the newspaper or CBC was that, in fact, the government, the Bank of Canada, has purchased this government debt. So if that's true, that's is that good news? Is there is there a kind of flag here that in your mind, I, you know? And we can talk about what's going on in the U.S. I don't I don't think the th- same thing is happening in the U.S. But Maybe Canada could be a model, is my question, if we play this right. And very few Canadians do not know this story about pre-1974 when they went to, you know, Basel and they kind of signed over the power of government debts to the private sector.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, well, that's great. Our our. Federal Reserve is doing something similar. I mean, they've said that they're going to engage in quantitative easing again to the extent necessary, and quantitative easing means buying government bonds, and they're going to also buy some mortgage-backed securities, I think. Um, But they didn't say how much of the debt they would buy, but it sounds like they're probably going to buy the debt. And that's good. I mean, it's very good. It means as long as they keep the debt and don't try to sell it back, you know, quantitative easing. The reason they got away with it was supposedly it was reversible, and it was like we're just doing this for now. And when when the climate is economic climate is right, we'll sell the bonds back. And you know, whereas if you do helicopter money, what's called, where you just drop money on the people and you don't expect to get it back, then that's considered to be inflationary. Right. They tried to reverse the quantitative easing, and they couldn't do it. The stock market freaked out. You know it. Plummeted, and of course, things up all about the stock market in our economy. Um, so they went back to buying back the bonds. So you can't really reverse quantitative easing. So it really is helicopter money. And the, and the thing is, our central bank, and I assume your central bank too, refunds the interest to the government after paying their costs. So it's interest free money. And as long as they keep rolling it over and over and over, then it's free money. There's just money created on the books. So that's all good. Now, the question is, and what I wrote an article about recently, is why is that not going to generate hyperinflation, which is what it looks like. It would looks like that would happen if you just keep pumping money out and you don't suck it back. But the reason is, and of course, I suppose it would if you put enough money out there. But as long as you're putting out $1,000 a month, Which was what I, or twelve hundred dollars, which is what I was proposing for a universal basic income per person, per adult. Um, That is the difference between what people are able to meet the cost. You know, the cost of the difference between what they can pay out of their incomes for the cost, cost, average cost of living, and what they have to borrow. So that's why we have. Uh, debt going up, 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 and if you want to get rid it relative to GDP, and if you want to get rid of that debt, if you well, I guess we have to go back to how money is created. So all money is created as a debt, as yeah. we know, you know, know have a little bit of it, coins and dollar bills, but or even dollar bills are actually debt. But so virtually all money is created as a debt by banks. They create the principal, but they don't create the interest. So there's always more debt owed back than was created in the original loan. And right. that's why debts keep going up and up. And in my last article, I included a chart which showed that the debt just goes up, up, up relative to incomes.
0: I've just updated those numbers. There, there are $73 trillion as of the third quarter 2019, uh, Federal Reserve statistics. And of course, I think they just uh, announced $7 trillion additional, right? If that's the number if That's the correct number: seven trillion of new quantitative eased money uh created for this COVID situation. Would that be fair it, it, in the U.S.
2: Right You're in the U.S. US, yeah, the US.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, well, it's yeah four four trillion or four and a half trillion on top of that four hundred fifty-four billion of capital put up by us, the taxpayers, yeah. and then if they're floating the two or three trillion dollar. Um, Congressional Chairs Act as well that's seven trillion at least right there
2: yeah yeah of course the, the problem with our situation is that the people who are writing the checks are not follow, are giving it to their friends or giving it to categories of recipients that they're not even doing a very a very conscientious they're not doing a conscientious job of tracking at all so there's a real uh, a, a lack of responsible administration they're just handing it out to you know, air, airplane companies and cruise ships and a whole host of other, uh, large corporate entities, the people are not getting much at all. Uh, if in Canada you're getting $2,000 a month, if, that's if terrific.
0: Apply, like sorry. You, here's the thing in Canada. First of all, you have to go on unemployment, right? So right. you want your employer to lay you off uh, as I did with my daughter. And then she applies through her digital wow. ID for unemployment, right, and then then that two thousand dollars a month is sort of a guaranteed, right? I mean, you have to reapply every month for it, but mm-hmm. it's still it'll it'll. The average income before COVID was around four thousand dollars a month per person, right? So two thousand dollars would probably get most of us through um, mm-hmm. this difficult time. Because what are we buying but groceries and booze and whatever? I mean, so um, yeah. so, but in the U.S. I think, it's uh, it's it's a greater hardship, I think, on the average person. You don't have the same kind of benefit stream coming,
2: and the people are, basically, the people are not getting nearly what they need. But also, many of them aren't getting it at all. And so, those people who don't have bank accounts are some, in some cases, waiting five months and more uh, to get money that they need now to be able to pay uh, to to cover their lives. So right. it's a it, one of the dark blessings of this. Uh, situation we're going through is the is the stark realizations that we're seeing about how people have to live in a world that was built around money and debt and uh, and 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 that sort of that and that market relationship uh, as opposed to a real commitment to their well-being their health their safety their health etc etc those those essential sort of qualities that you would think human community would prioritize are not prioritized in our market. Uh, uh thinking and consequently in trying to restore our markets uh it, it rolls over the the built-in inequities uh, uh that um we're seeing now manifest on all kinds of levels apparently going to be going on for quite a while like this
0: so um back to you ellen if if we are on the phone right now with mona forte the associate finance minister who speaks directly the finance minister what would you be advising uh today monday as to are we doing the right thing? Should a universal basic income become a common thing in Canada? And and secondly, what should the restored uh, powers of the central bank be if they were restored to pre seventy four sort of conditions? Is that a fair question?
1: Yeah. Well, I would think for uh, yes, you should do universal basic income, and if your numbers are about the same as ours, to twelve hundred a month would not be inflationary. So I was starting to say about how money is created. So if that money goes to pay down debt, it disappears. Money is created as a loan, but here's the catch. It's extinguished when the debt when the loan is repaid. Yes. So if you're putting in just enough to fill the gap between what people earn and what they what the cost of living is, and then that and they use that money to pay down their credit card debt or student debt or whatever. That doesn't I mean I mean they still you're assuming they're going to keep paying their debt. So if they put that money, they're still going to get extra money because, you know, they, instead of paying their student debt, they'll have that money to spend that they would have put to their student debt. But the money that goes to student debt is going to get extinguished. Extinguished, yes. Yeah. So so that balances out. I mean, and you start small just to be safe and see what happens. Or you know, if it doesn't, if it starts inflating. And, and you and you got to look at inflation across the board, too. Inflation is from too much money chasing too few goods. So if we're talking about something where you've got a supply problem, like right now, you can't get eggs, not because the chickens aren't producing, but because we can't get the cartons from China. And they're right. dumping the eggs on the ground or whatever, you know, getting rid of the eggs, and people are starving. So. You know, anyway, when you have shortages, the price will go up, but you want to look at the prices across the board. And and if the prices in general are going up, then then it could well be from too much money. And then you want to back off on what you're you're spending. But then that's just to fill the gap in consumer debt. There is also, um, well, obviously there's a federal debt. I mean, you could do infrastructure. You can do all kinds of things where you put more money out there. And as long as you're creating new products, if you're if you're creating a railroad that's going to generate fees, you could put the money as credit to build the railroad and then the fees will pay back the loan. And so that too will balance out. You're not just pumping money out there for free. It is in the nature of a loan.
0: Would you say that, uh, in terms of priority, would you prioritize the extinguishing of federal government and then provincial government debts in that order, or would you focus on the consumer, on the household first, or or balance of
1: them? I think you can do both because the 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 other debts are going to be um, self funding loans, so they're loans. They're not uh, they're mm. not helicopter money per se. I mean, that's what most of the, that four trillion. That the Federal Reserve is creating is our loans, not helicopter. Thank you. Yeah, it does have to be paid back. The CARES money is helicopter. I mean, it's free, free money. I see. Largely, Um, yeah. But so, so that four trillion, supposedly, that money will get paid back. So that's okay, as long as you're putting it into something that does pay back. And that's what Roosevelt did in the thirties. And it worked out brilliantly. Well, he he just funded anything or the reconstruction finance corporation funded anything and everything that would pay back like dams and road bridges and farms. And
0: yeah. so what you're saying in a way I think this is our common message is we're not, you know, we're not being reinventing something here. We're going back to what we did before. Uh, And you've written also about what China and Japan do. I mean, Japan writes off debts all all the time through its sovereign bank system. And yet in the West, we've seemed to have forgotten that that trick or that approach. Um, And why can we actually go back to those times? What would a modern kind of Roosevelt system look like in your mind?
1: Yeah, well, we should be, we should have another reconstruction finance corporation or another development bank that handles all those loans, but that's a problem right now. All the loans are being handled by BlackRock, which is <laughs> private. You. And they're, you know, they're in the investing business. So who do you think they're going to invest in? Obviously the big companies that are, that are in their funds. So I mean, you need, a, you need a Reconstruction Finance Corporation that's run by civil servants who had no have no uh, skin in the game, you know, that aren't going to make a profit off of who they choose to invest in.
2: Our colleague, uh, Dr. Robert Hockett, has done several papers recently uh, around he and his colleague uh, from Cornell writing about the need for a, a public agency for investment and perhaps a, a national investment authority that would do exactly that, but it wouldn 't just do it on a on a per war sort of a basis. it would be integrated into our national financial architecture, so that it would be an ongoing factor and it would be um, the, the the vehicle through which projects like this could be uh, could be funded from the public and in any other sort of collaborative way uh, that would be devised, but it would continue and continue and continue. And that's, and that it's, you know, it points out that the whole idea of a a PPP, a plan, you know, a a public private partnership doesn't work because private parties do not have, except perhaps BlackRock, do not have (laughs) the means to really cover uh, the extent there. And then also that private investors have short term windows. They're thinking. They only look for what t- short-term projects uh, are, are going to be there. So we there are m- multiple levels of u- public utilities that need to be established now that we've known or that we've seen that the neoliberal model uh, doesn't do all of us uh, many many favors. So whether it's transportation, health, education, and so forth, these are uh, are functional authorities that we need to public authorities and banking. Uh, that needs to belong to the public in the public domain, uh, moving yeah, forward.
1: Also, if you have, a, like, the, um, BlackRock uh, uh, determining where the investment goes, that focus is all on, on profits, short-term profits, whereas if it's a public entity, the profit is the profit of the whole community. So mm-hmm. you look long-range, like, we need to fix our roads, but nobody's that's not going to pay back an instant short-term return but what it is going to do is make it so people can get to work faster i mean it's in the end it's going to increase the the money of the whole community it's going to which will increase the tax base and all that stuff and that was demonstrated with the um uh what am i thinking of you know oh after the after world war ii you know the um
2: the new New
1: Deal? No, what they gave to the soldiers.
0: Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, right, right. They built like the homes. Loans. They built and homes, right? They built they built homes about cars. They
1: yeah, oh, and they right. it it came back to the people collectively. Right. So right. So, uh,
0: so another question. uh talked about public banks and at the state or provincial level. Uh, just just before that, I've updated the estimated cost of interest in every household dollar of income in the United States. Uh, based on these due numbers, and it comes out about forty five cents for every dollar so that's a little lower than it was uh, last year when it was around fifty cents and that's because median household income actually went up according to uh, the Bureau of economic analysis so that but that still suggests that we're working a good portion of our week just to pay interest which are hidden in the costs of goods and services and taxes of course which uh, seems ridiculous and um, so yeah
1: it's what you can see why you need to pay interest if you're a small business because some businesses will fail and you've got to cover the defaults and all that and the bank will have costs but if the lender it's we the people Lending for our own projects. In other words, we're just issuing credit to ourselves. There's yeah. no money for interest
0: then. So this, this is what I told the Associate Finance Minister. We know from the study of happiness and money, around 75,000 US per household is probably sufficient for a good life, a reasonable life. And if you strip interest out of that equation, of course you fall to more like $50,000. So that equates to maybe a $20 an hour uh, wage. Uh, for a two working couple, let's say, you know. So that's an interesting number to think about um, when we're thinking about, well, can we design an economy of a UBI economy? Uh, but not too much, just you know, just enough to have a, a good life and participate fully. And I think we can fashion that. Uh, the question I have, though, is from what you're doing in New Jersey, and we, we look at the Alberta Treasury Branch and the Bank of North Dakota, uh, one of the, the the opportunity I see is that these public banks at the state or provincial level could in, in theory, be creating the money. They needed liquidity that, that we we need now given the hemorrhaging that's going on and that uh, our own investment corporations could hold that debt. So that's one of the things I've been sort of proposing. I don't get a lot of feedback from my economist friends cause they, they don't understand money anyways, but I'm just wondering what kind of conversations are happening with the uh, is it McMurphy Murphy in uh, New yeah. Jersey, right? Yeah. And isn't he the, also the chair, of the the governors or something, in the U.S. Uh, of the,
2: de- of the Dem- Democratic Governors Association? Yeah. So, yeah. so
0: what's happening? What what kind of conversations are happening around this? Well, uh, they
2: have an implementation board and a public banking implementation board started last November by, and there's to be an, announcing who they were going to be doing the study with. Uh, really, uh, at the end of la- last month. Um, we just got word today that that, uh, that things are changing there uh, as a result of the COVID reality. Uh, and I think that one of the things that in the last couple of weeks that we've been working at at PBI uh, is really to put forward the notion that uh, creating a public bank, not uh, not in the, the slow, the, the gradual uh, process that we'd envisioned for, well, you know, we'll work toward a public bank, we'll study it and all that stuff. No, anymore. We're realizing we're really at a point where we, ha- where states and cities have got to have the bank as part of the architecture of their long-term finance. In part, because at the moment, and this is the crux of all of our issues, is the the capital is in the hands of private parties. So that even states and cities are being hard pressed to even access uh, the the new um, uh, municipal uh, liquidity facility, the MLF, which we understand. Uh, is I think it was 150 billion dollars that put out for cities and states to sell their paper to the Fed. Well, the Fed hasn't been very forthcoming with that and hasn't been very active about it. And pro- we understand on the insides the state treasurers are getting the impression that they're supposed to go to the market first uh, to borrow this money for a shorter period of time. It's been extended, but it's three years, and it's uh, and it's going to be somewhere in a, in, in a market rate uh, the, uh, basis as opposed to the the banker rate, which is like 0 to 0.25%, and that they'll only be able to borrow 20% of their latest years of revenue. So in other words, the states and cities... Are are again cut out of the deal. So we're saying, hey, look, guys, uh, you're in for trouble. You all know you're in for trouble. Murphy, our governor in New Jersey, yeah, yeah. I I want nine billion dollars, and and the feds are apparently not going to come up with that. Now that the, uh, mm-hmm. the 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 negotiation thing has been kind of disadvantaged further uh, deployment of federal dollars. So we're saying so okay. So look, you need to immediately move toward creating public banks and do it. Forget about the studies. Do Just it by governor. Uh, We're in an emergency, right? An Did emergency act. Yeah. And why? And the reason for it is very simple: that once you're a bank with access to the federal master account, then you can borrow at the same advantageous rates as the corporations, as the hedge funds, as the right. people that the Federal Reserve serves, not the people of the United States. No, no, there, you know there are there are <laughs> you know there are targets there. Uh, so. Once the states get into that position by having their own bank, then they can borrow exactly as you were saying, Mark, they can begin to monetize their liquidity, create their own credit uh, by extending credit to themselves uh, at, that they can carry on their books. And then, of course, they can get liquidity if, when they, if they need it. They can get liquidity at the Fed window. So That's it's a pretty simple sort of a solution. It's a rather dramatic one, but I think we're seeing that this in this time that there is no time to waste. Let's get on with getting what's real and also with our priorities in,
0: in debt. Yeah. Well, thank you. We're, I'm almost out of time on my free Zoom account, but uh, <laughs> I refuse to buy an upgrade. Just <laughs> I know 30 minutes is plenty. Any, any uh, closing thoughts? Uh, thank you for both of you. Um, Ellen, any thoughts of hope? What were... What gives
1: you hope? I just add to what Walt said that even that $150 billion that's supposed to go to the states, they can't use it for anything that was in their budget up to March 27th or something like that. So they can't use it, really. I mean, how many hospitals and nurses and masks do you need? Um, but that the, for the bankers that are borrowing at 0% interest, there are no strings attached at all. And they can, so they're still lending at 21% to, on credit cards. They, they lowered the interest rate by a half a percent. And I saw that in Canada, they cut the rate in half. Like the credit card rate is now 11%. That's
0: right.
1: It wasn't the feds that made them do it, but they leaned on them. Like the hint was, we'll come after you. You know, if you, if you don't want us to come out with an official order, do something, <laughs> you know, do the reasonable, friendly thing. And they did, but not our banks, banks. You know, they get away oh, with wow. murder, and they know they can get away with murder. I, I
2: would just I close. Think if we, since we can't beat
1: them, we <laughs> let's join them. <laughs> need to play their game, yeah.
2: So I would just close on on an upbeat note, briefly building on what we were saying before, which is that as we see the what's emerging, how bereft and uh, and um, uh, screwed up our old system is. Let's not go back to what we used to have. A lot of people are saying that we're all ready for something new. So it's really important that we, it's, it, it's essential that we, each of us, prioritize what's important to us, which we all know is life, the planet, you know, sustainability, uh, well-being, and happiness. These are the things that make life worth living. Uh, and so that means that we ought to think in our own head as, look, Who's running the show or Who's got their hand on the checkbook? If it's a private party, they're in it for, the, they're not the guys that we want. We want real democratic power here uh, to make our institutions represent our interests.
0: Well, right. thank you for that. <laughs> I've been playing with the, rewriting the, your U.S. Declaration, and I'm calling it the Charter of Love. So we find these things self-evident, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. What's self-evident?
2: <laughs> my my brother came up with a nice variation called the Declaration of Interdependence.
0: Love it. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you both. Um, I'm sure we'll see each other soon again. But, Hopefully. Uh, thanks for joining me. Take care. Yeah, thank good you, Mark. to
1: see you virtually.
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. And
0: this is Mark Nielski. As a follow-up on. The conversation with Ellen Brown and Walt McCree about the role of public banking, it's instructive to do a historical uh, analysis and retrospective analysis of the Bank of Canada and its origins. The Bank of Canada was established in 1934 under private ownership, Uh, but in 1938 the government nationalized the bank, so since then it has been publicly owned. It was mandated to lend not only to the federal government but to the provinces as well to help bring Canada out of the Great Depression. Debt-free money was literally injected into various infrastructure projects. With the outbreak of World War II, it was the Bank of Canada that financed the enormously costly war effort. Canada created the world's third largest navy and ranked fourth in production of Allied war materials. Afterwards, the bank financed programs to assist World War II veterans and Vaccinational and University Training and Subsidized Farmland. Between 1939 and 1974, the federal government borrowed extensively from its own central bank, without interest charges. That made a debt effectively interest-free, since the government owned the bank and got the benefit of any interest. As such, Canada emerged from World War II and from all the extensive infrastructure and other expenditures with very little debt. But following 1974 came a dramatic change. In 1974, Prime Minister Trudeau came under the influence of neoliberal economists including Frederick Hayek and Milton Friedman. He decided that Canada should dramatically reduce borrowing interest-free money from Canada's own bank and instead would borrow the bulk of its money from chartered banks, private banks, and pay interest on those loans. It appears that the decision was made without informing Canada's Parliament. At least, we don't have any formal record of a debate about this very important change in financial and monetary policy. In 1974, the Bank for International Settlements, which is based in Basel, Switzerland, formed the Basel Committee to establish global monetary and financial stability goals. Canada joined those deliberations. The Basel Committee's solution to the so-called stagflation problem of that time was to encourage governments to borrow from private banks that charged interest and end the practice of borrowing interest-free from their own publicly-owned banks. The argument was that publicly-owned banks inflate the money supply in prices, whereas charter banks supposedly only recycle pre-existing money. What they purposely suppressed, though, was that private banks create the money they lend, just as public banks do when they issue loans. Ellen Brown, public banking specialist, says as follows, The difference is simple. Simply that a publicly owned bank returns the interest to the government and the community, while a privately owned bank siphons the interest into its capital accounts to be reinvested at further interest, progressively drawing money out of the productive economy. The effect of such a change would result in the removal of a powerful economic tool from the hands of democratic governments and give such control to foreign bankers, or to even domestic bankers. When you look at a graph of Canada's federal debt, something is clear that something went terribly wrong after 1974. Over a 108-year period from 1867 to 1974... The accumulated debt of Canada shows nearly a flat line, growing to only $18 billion over this 108 year period. But around 1974, the debt begins to grow exponentially and, over a 43 year period, reaches $728 billion by the end of 2017. The debt curve that began its exponential rise in 1974 tilted towards a vertical in 1981 when interest rates reached as high as 22% in Canada. Canada now, as a result of this change in 1974, has paid over a trillion dollars in interest on its federal and provincial debts, at least more than twice the actual debt itself. In other words, from, ni- from 1867 to 1992, the federal government accumulated a net debt of $423 billion. Of this, $37 billion is the actual debt, which represents the accumulated shortfall in meeting the cost of government programs since 1867. The remaining $386 billion represents the amount the government had to borrow to service the debt, essentially a payment of interest on interest to the private sector. If the government had borrowed this money interest-free from its own Bank of Canada to service the actual shortfall of $37 billion, a debt to private sector and banks of $386 billion would have never been created. If the federal government needs additional funds to those collected by taxes, it should borrow all of these funds from its own bank, interest-free. This is the most important part. In this current situation of a post-COVID economic collapse, we need to revisit the role of the central bank, the Bank of Canada, and its historical role as providing interest-free financing to governments, both federal and provincial. This is especially important since cutting out interest has been shown to reduce the overall average cost of public projects by about 40%. Why should the government be borrowing from private investors and charter banks when they have the power under the act of the public bank to create the money without interest and without costs? As Ellen Brown explains, the oldest public bank in the United States, the Bank of North Dakota, is able to make 2% loans to North Dakota communities for local infrastructure. Half or less of that rate is held by local governments in other states. Since 50% of the cost of infrastructure is financing, the state can cut infrastructure costs nearly in half simply by financing this infrastructure through its own bank its own state bank or public bank, which can then return the interest to the state. The profits return to the bank, which either distributes them as dividends to the state or uses them to build up its capital base in order to expand its loan portfolio. In the case of China, which Ellen has written about, the government owns most of the country's banks, China has managed to fund massive infrastructure projects all across the country including 12,000 miles of high-speed rail lines which were built in just decades. These state-owned banks return their projects or sorry return their profits to the government making the loans interest-free and the loans can be rolled over indefinitely. If China can do this why can't Canada with its own Bank of Canada? If North Dakota can make a publicly owned bank work Why can't each of Canada's provinces have their own public banks? It appears that because of Canada's constitutional laws and regulations, that it would be difficult today to create provincial public banks. However, in 1938, Alberta set an important precedent under Premier William Eberhardt. The Alberta Treasury branches were established a direct arm of the Alberta Treasury. Essentially a bank, but not technically a bank, it provides full financial services under its mandate to all Albertans, with assets of over $50 billion now and branches in 243 communities serving almost three-quarters of a million Albertans. It continues to play an important role as a vital financial instrument in the province, Yet, few have considered its potential powers to create money for the province, just like the Bank of North Dakota does for the state of North Dakota, or like the Central Bank with the Bank of Canada could play in providing interest-free loans to all of Canada, particular governments. What is the future role of the Alberta Treasury Branch in creating interest-free debt for the province? Particular at this important and critical economic time and crises? Can some of this debt created by the Provincial Bank be held by the Central Bank of Canada, or could it be held at no cost within the Alberta Investment Management Corporation, our public investment fund? These are important questions to be discussing today during this important economic crisis we are in. Why isn't more being done to restore the powers of the Central Bank, the Bank of Canada, to its historical powers, which existed for 108 years, or certainly until 1974? On May 4, 2017, the Supreme Court of Canada declined to hear an appeal case that would challenge the reinstation or reinstitution of the powers of the Central Bank to its original interest-free money creation process. Their decision was not clear as to why they rejected the appeal or even the case. It seems that the matter was more of a political issue than it was a financial or fiscal or even monetary policy issue. Strong arguments can be made to the contrary, and further court procedures may still take place. But in the meantime, it seems that the issue at present cannot be resolved through a judicial process. Now more than ever, it is urgent to discuss the importance of public banks as the basis of creating money as a public utility for all Canadians. The truth is, this accumulated debt, which now adds up to in excess of $1.4 trillion of both federal and provincial debt, of which the federal portion is at least $728 billion, makes no sense at all. It appears that perhaps as much as 90% of this $1.4 trillion is a result of compound interest charges that was created by investors and private banks. Why is it that we continue to give over the power of money creation, which should be a public good and a public utility entitlement for all Canadians, be handed over to the private sector, in which the transfer of wealth has been enormous, and the cost to every Canadian is not only apparent, but and injustice.